You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 129. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation issues from all around the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today we are discussing a truly unique and fascinating project that has been implemented in Scotland called Project Wolf. Now, despite the title, this is not an actual wolf reintroduction project. Although the organization managing the project, called Trees for Life, is interested in eventually reintroducing wolves in Scotland, they recognize that this is a long-term goal. So in the meantime, they have organized human wolf packs. These are small groups of people tasked with wandering through the Scottish landscape, replicating certain aspects of wolf behavior. Let's jump in. My name is Lisa Marley. I am a filmmaker originally from Scotland, now living in Bristol in the UK. And I make films about where human and animal stories overlap. I'm Doug Gilbert. I'm the operations manager for Trees for Life's conservation estate uh, in Inverness, Scotland, Dundragon. Uh, and I'm the one who's responsible for uh, for managing Project Wolf. Um, but my overall role is much wider than that, taking into account conservation management of uh, 4,000 hectares of Scottish highlands. Uh, and Trees for Life is an organisation, a charity that is all about uh, forest restoration. So that's our main goal. Awesome. And yeah, Doug, that's kind of my first question for you is to just give me a little bit more background uh, about the organisation you work for, Trees for Life. Um, I mean, what what inspired the creation of this organisation? What's sort of the central mission? Okay, well, uh, the central mission is really Scotland needs more trees. Uh uh, because of um, uh, three or four millennia of uh, grazing and browsing pressure and history, plus climate change uh, in the mid to late um, Neolithic and uh, various other um, aspects of, of uh, activity, Scotland has lost 96% of its forest, native forest cover. Uh, and so we are currently sitting bottom of the table really of European nations in terms of uh, native forest cover and uh, we've got a particularly uh, exciting and interesting woodland called uh, Caledonian Pinewood which uh, has international importance and that was in the same box really it was it's you know there are lots of uh, fragments of this forest scattered around Scotland which are under pressure for various reasons so that whole uh, ecological um, crisis of forest cover in particular, uh, native woodland cover in Scotland, has been the catalyst for creating an uh, organisation like Trees for Life, which came out of one person's vision, really, of uh, deciding that somebody had better do something. Uh, and that person was uh, Alan Watson Featherson, who started Trees for Life 25, 26 years ago. And he basically just started planting trees using volunteers, and we've grown from that to a uh, small charity with a million pound turnover and uh, about 19 members of staff and hundreds more volunteers. 
Lisa, how did you find out about the work being done by, by Trees for Life, and, and, and what inspired you to, uh, to launch this documentary project that you're involved with? Uh, well, simply, I, I saw a, a tiny little article about it in the paper, and it struck me as instantly interesting. Uh, um, it, it seemed to bring so many things together to do with rewilding. It wasn't only talking about large predators, which, of course, is, is um, something that gets a lot of the headlines. It was also talking about the small stuff, about ecological restoration, and it was also talking about human involvement and getting people outdoors for this prolonged period of time that I found very interesting. Those were sort of I think like most filmmakers, you have a lot of, you know, topics and things that you would love to make a film on, but it's about waiting for the time to be right and for there to be an interesting story to base it around. And this just struck me as as perfect. So before I knew it, I was uh, traveling up to Inverness to meet Alan Watson Featherstone, have a chat with him and, uh, yeah, get get a film in the works, really, because I thought this was the perfect way to talk about rewilding. Cool. Yeah. And so, I mean, your film is, is focused specifically on uh, this one project uh, of the organization Trees for Life, which is called Project Wolf. So, Doug, let's let's back up a minute here and, and give me an introduction to this this specific project, Project Wolf. Uh, first thing to mention right up front, and I don't want anybody to be under impression that, uh, especially listening in Scotland or in the UK, that this is about the reintroduction. This is a project that uh, aims to reintroduce wolves. Uh, that's not what we're doing at all. But what we're trying to do is to um, uh, imitate the the impact that a, a predator has uh, on browsers of uh, woodland and young saplings in Scottish woodlands. Uh, and they are the, the current blocker to uh, woodland expansion. And that, that's been shown um, fairly fairly conclusively across uh, large areas of Scotland that, that uh, the relation the balance between deer and trees is uh, way uh, way in favor of the deer so the trees effectively are being uh, browsed into extinction so and, and that's one of the reasons behind that is a lack of uh, natural predation humans predate deer all, all the time and that's for sporting purposes which it has a specific impact, but it's not not a, not a the same impact as a wild predator. So we're trying to introduce at least some element uh, of a, a predator stalking around uh, a piece of woodland and effectively scaring or disturbing deer uh, away from their uh, uh, natural uh, inclination just to continue to browse uh, trees. So the idea is to introduce people into the landscape which then imitates at least some of the impact of having a predator around because deer are very are uh, quite quite rightly very scared of people um, and uh, so if you if you are wandering around the wood uh, especially at night or at dusk and dawn then uh, the deer you know will become aware of that and they uh, and they, their levels of anxiety and the levels of uh, heightened awareness about what's around them uh, means that they're not browsing as much. And so these these groups of people who are essentially, like you said, sort of stalking through the woods in the evening in this attempt to sort of replicate the impact that wolves, uh, you know, might have had, at least this one aspect of it. Um, I, I'm just trying to get... A sense of like what what this looks like, right? And and I'm wondering, Lisa, have you have you had a chance at this point to um, to get out with these these groups of people that are involved in Project Wolf? Oh yeah, so I've I've done the main shoot for the film. Um, it was 
crowdfunded earlier this year. And then I went out in May to spend a week with the wolves. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's certainly an experience. So, um, and a bit of a filming challenge as well, really. Uh, so they spend most of the night, um, roaming out in the woodlands. So in dark hours and obviously in, in uh, the Highlands of Scotland, it is particularly dark as well, trying to spot deer, trying to move them on and, uh, while camping out there as well. So they are, uh, very involved with this process for the whole month. They're really living it day to day. So it was really interesting to see. Are there like maybe individual participants who like, you know, are, are like inspired to like replicate other aspects of wolf behavior? I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to like get a picture of like what, what this is like and the sort of the personalities of the types of people who would participate in this. Oh, well, all of them have, uh, have taken it uh, uh, quite seriously to, you know, but there's, there's also obviously an element of, uh, of fun in there. Some, uh, you know, have been uh, howling uh, although, uh, we, as we know, uh, wolves howl as a social uh, interaction between themselves, so that doesn't actually, that's not a hunting sort of behaviour, and it wouldn't, I don't, I don't think it has very much of an effect uh, on uh, Scottish deer in any case, and we're not even sure whether there's any cultural or um, uh, memory uh, within deer in Scotland of, of wolf howling. But yeah, people do that. It's, it's good fun, uh, especially when the moon's bright and, uh, you know, uh, you you know that very few people will hear you, so it's not you know not going to be an embarrassment on Facebook. Um, yeah. <laughs> but they've also, there's also some people who have taken. We know that uh, wolves mark their territories uh, and they pee and poo in in uh, along trails, and that may have an impact on the way that deer uh, behave and move through a landscape. Uh, so some of them, yeah, you know, just because of uh, the call of nature, that's what happens. Uh, but there's uh, one or two of them have tried to, you know, um, make that make that more of the more uh, more integral part of the project. People always talk about getting, you know, can't you get wolf scat from uh, from uh, zoos or uh, other enclosures? And I think that has been tried and found to be pretty unsuccessful. So, again, I'm not sure what the impact of that might be. The only thing that's been found to be effective, apparently, is pepper spray. If you go around spraying pepper spray everywhere, that that actually changes deer behavior. I certainly didn't capture any of that on camera. There was no marking anybody's territory. <laughs> <laughs> I think the group that you had, uh, yeah, into May, so it was quite light. Uh, for oh a good yeah, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it might have been a little, little less um, discreet. <laughs> Neat. So, I mean, you know, you, you, you mentioned, Doug, that humans already had been playing this interactive role with deer populations, um, you know, actually going out and hunting and, and harvesting deer. I'm assuming that this is not, you know, that's not a part of this human wolf pack project. And probably, you know, I'm, I'm guessing if, you know, Scotland is anything like the U.S., you know, there's a, a sort of, you know, regulated season for that. Um, and uh, it's it's all very controlled. But but I do wonder if, like, you know, the organization Trees for Life is is involved in, in any aspect of, you know, active hunting of, of these deer and, uh, you know, trying to figure out, like, what the right balance for a population size of deer is for that landscape. Uh, certainly, yes, you cannot um, think about forest restoration without getting engaged with um, hands-on deer management, really. So with um, 10,000 acres, 4,000 hectares, there's actually 
within the within the politics and the regulations that are set up just now, we've, we've virtually got an obligation. All the all land managers have an obligation to uh, to at least uh, manage deer in a way that reduces impacts on other people. But so yes, we do carry out uh, a cull. Uh, of red deer using uh, trained and um, uh, regulated hunters. It's, it's a bit different from the um, the situation in the US in that private landowners effectively have the right to choose, you know, how many deer they shoot uh, and who shoots them as long as they're on uh, on their own land. There's no there's no wider regulation other than you have the landowner's permission. Uh, so that that's quite a big difference, and that that creates its own problems. Uh, yeah, so we do we do get involved in uh, in culling, and that's one of the the data issues around Project Wolf is that we can't easily separate the the impact of Project Wolf and the disturbance that we're uh, achieving there with the with the reduction cull because we re- reduce the numbers of deer down from uh, let's say about ten. Uh, deer per uh, kilometre square to around about four or five now, so virtually half the population of deer in the last three to five years. That's definitely an, an interesting point you bring up of like, how do you measure the impact of this disturbance from Project Wolf if the population of deer is also actively being, uh, or is, 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 is declining, right, because of increased hunting pressure? Is Trees for Life like involved in active research to try to figure out what that ideal number of deer is? And I mean, is it possible that this is this is just an overpopulation issue and that it could be solved without these human wolf packs? Uh, yes. So there's you know there's lots of chat and debate around what uh, what deer density you need in order to kickstart natural regeneration of native forests, uh, and that's generally regard it, it's a little bit site specific. But generally, between uh, below five deer per per square kilometer uh, is is pretty much the uh, the top line, and obviously you can go down to zero, and uh, you know you have different impacts. So Trees for Life is actively engaged in the local deer management group, and also uh, through uh, an organisation called Link, uh, which is a conservation uh, consortium of conservation organisations in uh, in Scotland. Uh, we're involved in um, uh, what we should say, uh, involved in lobbying government uh, to at least look at this issue and uh, try and resolve it. But yes, the, the major problem is an overpopulation of deer. So we, it, it would be possible quite easily to manage the whole whole thing by uh, a reduction cull across very wide areas. That Politically, that's quite tricky. Uh, and even within our own deer management group, that the fact that we've reduced our uh, deer population has caused some frictions there. So we're quite keen to try and uh, you know help them out uh, and to uh, accept what we're doing. Uh, so Project Wolf forms part of that, uh, that package of measures which Trees for Life is saying that we're we're uh, trying to we're not just shooting all the deer. We're not exterminating deer. We want deer in this woodland landscape. Uh, and we're trying to help our neighbours by uh, reducing the numbers we shoot through this increased disturbance. 
how many people are out there participating in this project? You know, how many human wolf packs do you have going out on the landscape to, to do this disturbance? Um, and, and then I, I'm also wondering, like, is the idea here that this will become an ongoing project or is this just kind of like one time thing to kind of experiment and see how it works? We've got 4,000 hectares, but uh, 150 hectares only are uh, native woodlands, so, and we're concentrating our efforts to try and uh, kickstart natural regeneration in that much smaller area. So it's quite a discrete small area. So what we've done is we've had packs of three wolves uh, heading out at any one time, and we've done that during the specific time when uh, the hunting season is finished, but the uh, young seedling trees are just in leaf burst and just, you know, uh, at that stage where they're very nutritious and very uh, succulent for deer to eat. The deer are starving uh, at the very end of the winter, so they're desperate to eat all those trees. And so that's when we put um, Project Wolf into place. We, the, the original plan was to do it for three years, um, to try and get funding for three years. We've only able, in fact, been able to fund it from year to year, so it's still you know, a bit doubtful as to whether we'll be able to do it next year. Um, and whether it becomes a wider thing, there, we have had some interest from other uh, estate managers, deer managers, who uh, are looking at it and thinking, you know, hmm, maybe this is you know, a potential way of, uh, an extra way of managing deer uh, for us. Uh, but we're still at the early, early stages. We're basically, basically holding this out as a bit of a pilot to say, you know, this we can do this. It can it can work, and people don't die in the woods, and you know they enjoy themselves, and we can show some kind of some kind of effect on the deer. So yeah, it, it's part pilot, uh, part revolution. <laughs> awesome, awesome. I love that. And I mean, you know, we we we've already talked a little bit about like you know sort of the other side of this, the human benefits, the you know the benefits that that the the participants in this project actually get out of it by just spending this time out on the landscape. I, I kind of want to dig into that a little bit more, and and you know, Lisa, maybe you can chime in here since it, it sounds like you spent a bunch of time with with one of these human wolf packs. I mean. You know, what's kind of the, uh, I'm just trying to get a sense of like the atmosphere, you know, like what it's like, what the interactions are like, um, how people are feeling when they're out in the woods pretending to be a wolf pack. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it is really interesting. I mean, what you have to remember is these three people spend that entire month together pretty much 24-7. They have a little bit of time here and there. Maybe they'll help out with other activities in the tree nursery. Maybe they'll just go for a walk during the day. But they're living in a little chalet together. They're sleeping out in the woods, uh, uh, sort of a base camp that they have, just in their sleeping bags in the open. Um, and they are spending each night working on this task together. So I think the group that I spent the time with was particularly, well, it was it was a good balance of people. It was particularly interesting to me. I think it was um, a good mix of people. Um, we had one person who is very, very comfortable outdoors, very, very confident, um, spends a lot of time outdoors. We had another person who is from Latvia. So for her, it was kind of, you know, she's been to Scotland before, but it was also learning uh, about Scotland and, and making comparisons between that. So I kind of got that perspective from from her and um, another person who was kind of a bit more a bit newer to all of this so she had done you know she's obviously a very outdoorsy person to come across this experience in the first hand but um yeah this was full of new experiences for her so I think there were really interesting perspectives all around and when they are out together they're very very focused um they you know it was quite interesting for me coming in two weeks into the uh project we did talk about me maybe coming earlier 
but it seemed better for their dynamics to be already up and running by the time I came. So it was um, really interesting joining in on that when they were very, very functional already. Um, and it's a very different experience to how most people go outdoors and experience the outdoors where you're sort of just um, visiting. You're just, you're just kind of going for that experience and then you're returning back home. They were kind of more part of that environment for that time I think and I think that resonated with them um they really felt at home there and it was a very strange situation as well you need to get used to going out in the pitch black uh just with these head torches and exploring your environments sometimes very challenging environments as well these weren't you know footpaths and stuff like that they were taking around all night this was going through heather going through woodland um so yeah I think they were all in it for slightly different reasons uh but there it was an eye-opening experience for for all of them definitely and i think most of us appreciate that spending that much time outdoors especially at night which is very strange um you know most people don't get to do that the, the vast majority of people probably don't spend that much time outdoors in in proper wild spaces in a year um so i think it was an incredibly immersive experience for all of them um so yeah they really got into a whole different state of mind i think for that month and how about you lisa i mean how much time did you spend out there with them and did you start to did you feel like you started to become a part of that group or were you trying to kind of uh, keep some separation there um well i actually have a background in anthropology that was my undergraduate so um you know these sorts of group dynamics are not new to me um, they were very welcoming to me, and I think I maybe had to be more of more part of the group than observing quite a lot of the time than maybe I would have wanted because we were kind of in this experience together. You know, you're covering a lot of ground, sometimes it's difficult ground. Sometimes you need to put the camera away and focus on that and communicate with each other. Um, I didn't spend that too much too much time out with them. In that week, uh, we actually only spent a few nights out, especially because of some bad weather as well, being Scotland, of course. Um but it was it was a definitely enough to get a thorough window and feel like I had that experience as well. I was a little nervous about the the fact we were out in pitch black. That was quite um, you know usually even if you're out camping, you set up base, you set up this kind of domestic area, and you say okay, I'm at home now and not in the wild. But you know, um, moving around during that time actually felt a lot safer than um, than I thought it would. So that was really interesting. But yeah, no, they, they definitely welcomed me, and I did try and keep a bit of distance because I wanted them to be interacting as they would normally. But yeah, we did kind of, they did kind of have to help me out a little bit. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds like a challenging environment to be in as a filmmaker, right? I mean, both because of like the darkness and trying to capture, you know, what's happening in, um, in at nighttime, um, but also just constant movement and, and dealing with all the camera equipment. Um, I mean, what what kind of challenges did did you face? Uh, just you know, in your attempt to sort of capture what was going on out there. Yeah, so so everything above, basically. There was lots and lots of technical challenges in this. Um, first of all, actually, I don't know if Doug knows this, actually, but when I first got told about the project and I spoke with people about doing this project, I got told they did walks at dusk and at dawn. So a few months down the line, when I was already doing the crowdfunder and somebody told me it was between dusk and dawn, uh, that was a big change to the project. I realized I'd be out all night instead of going for a walk at, you know, at, at sort of twilight hours. Um, so that was a challenge. Uh, I actually, I, I took another filmmaker's advice on this. Um, I did have a camera that, that was capable of infrared. I did use that a little bit for the deer. Um, but I found actually the aesthetic of 
just them having their head torches and maybe a little bit of additional light. Obviously, I was self-shooting, so I just had a little LED panel for that. Um, I feel like that was that worked much better, uh, especially now I'm coming back and looking at stuff in the edit. I feel like that gives you more of the atmosphere of what it's actually like, especially being in sort of pit black, pitch black atmosphere. Um, the first night we went out, it was raining, and I thought, oh, I'll just go out, you know, get a recce in. Um, and it was very slidey, some of the ground as well. So obviously you are very aware. We'd all start the night by going to base camp and dropping a lot of our stuff. Um, obviously I had to have quite a lot of the camera kit on me at all times so you are very nervous that you're gonna you know take out the camera equipment on night one and that's gonna be the end of the shoot um but yeah lots of challenges but also a lot of kind of unique rewards because this is a filming environment that you you do usually just don't have any reason to go out and and film people in the dark just with head torches usually you're going out and you're maybe filming wildlife at night and you are using infrared or maybe thermal or a special lighting or something like that or you're filming humans in the lit environment this is you know something completely different but um yeah i mean we'll have to see how it works in the edit but I, i'm pretty pleased with it in that way because it does give you a real sort of sense of what it's like actually being out there and kind of being out of a a normal situation that for, for humans being in the outdoors in general. So that can think that comes across well. You know, your, your involvement with this project, Lisa, you know, sort of brings up another question in my mind, um, which is how much media interest generally has, has uh, Project Wolf gotten? I mean, it, it, it seems like a really unique and interesting concept. And it's, it seems to me like something that, you know, uh, mainstream media outlets would, would be interested in, in, in exploring. Has the project gotten uh, uh, some good coverage and, and some exposure for the concept? Yeah, definitely. I mean, <clears throat> this appeals to people on so many levels. Um, it appeals to people interested in, in nature and rewilding. Um, there's also the social aspect of it. Um, there's, there's so many levels on which this is interesting, never mind that it has its fantastic title, which I had to use for the film, obviously, Project Wolf, um, even if it is a bit sensationalist before Doug stops me right there. Um, but, yeah, no, it is really interesting. We've had a lot of coverage, um, lots of blogs being interested in it. I imagine it will have more TV coverage in the future. We had STV and come and, and film me while I was with the Wolves and Doug as well. Um, and we also had some great endorsements from, I don't know it, um, how big these names are in the States, but we have Chris Packham, who's a very popular TV presenter. And I mean, very, very popular over here. Um, he was familiar with my last project, Red Sky in the Black Isle, which is about red kite poisonings in Scotland. Um, and he also gave us, you know, his endorsement for this film. Mark Avery, who, was, who um, he, he's very involved with sort of more bird and ornithological issues in Scotland, particularly around driven grouse shooting. Um, so again, this kind of almost factors into that conversation. And he was familiar with my last work. And of course, Alan Watson Featherstone, who is a big name in rewilding. I mean, if you look at most rewilding books in the intros, he'll probably be mentioned somewhere or referenced somewhere. Um, you know, these are a lot of big names all coming together with this so yeah lots lots of media coverage and i hope it gets a bit more especially because i i you know i put my money on it continuing the future hopefully for you guys at trees for life um i think that's only going to get bigger really as lisa said there was um last year there was a good bit of interest um this year we've had uh, local tv national tv we've had local newspapers and national newspapers as well including london papers reporting on it and that's partly because of the 
of the wolf thing and you know some of them have you know tried to take it down that path of uh, the reintroduction of the actual wolf uh, which we're, we're trying to steer away from but it has generated a lot of a lot of interest like that and not only from sort of just mainstream media um, but also from uh, particularly a guy called Alec Finlay who has is a poet uh, based in Edinburgh, he's uh, very um, active politically, but, but and uh, also very interested in rewilding uh, and land use uh, and sort of the the politics and uh, cultural aspects of all of that. And he's taken Project Wolf to a, a different level as well. With uh, he's intending to write uh, a book around the project, um, and he's also. Uh, connected that the feeling that Lisa was talking about around people immersing themselves in the landscape and learning about a landscape in a different way he's he's connecting that with the whole idea that uh, people the rural population of Scotland ha- have been uh, cut off from their um, their inheritance if you like of the land and, and relating that to Gaelic culture and Gaelic place names. Uh, and he's taken, you know, he's, he's mushroomed it uh, away from the original intent, which is really just a way of getting more trees on the ground. But I think so. I think it does it does connect very uh, uh, interestingly in, in interesting ways with different people. And they, they riff off it really, uh, as Lisa has done, uh, to quite spectacular results. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it strikes me, Doug, that, you know, one of the first things you mentioned to me when we started this conversation was, you know, you wanted to make it clear that we're not talking about actual wolf reintroductions here. Right. But, you know, uh, despite that, I mean, I think a lot of people immediately make that inference. Right. Um, and I think that like just the concept itself maybe gets people thinking about this idea of bringing real wolves back onto the landscape in, in, in Scotland. Um, and, you know, so I, I, I guess I just wonder, like, is, is, is this like, is this a long-term goal? I mean, I know that it's certainly not the immediate goal behind this project. The immediate goal is to, you know, restore habitat and, and, and bring more trees back. But I mean, is there a long-term goal to, to reintroduce wolves? Yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> so yes, you're, you're quite right. Um, uh, and that that wasn't, uh, you know, didn't we didn't choose the name Project Wolf uh, to um, sort of you know to lead people to think down that line, but it does. And yeah, it's a bit sensationalist. I, I agree, Lisa. <laughs> and, uh, but it certainly uh, raised lots of raised lots of eyebrows. And I think that's part of our role as a small conservation NGO is to, you know, uh, twitch the tiger's tail from time to time and say, come on, you know, we're, we're, we're now in the process of um, having beavers in Scotland reintroduce the European beavers. Uh, people are talking quite uh, openly and seriously now about uh, lynx, European lynx, which is similar to the bobcat. Uh, and so, you know, your, your brain naturally tends to think, well, the next, you know, the next level, the next story will be wolves. And yes, there, there is a long-term uh, ambition, I guess, to, to start at least start a serious conversation, which tries to get through the Little Red Riding Hood uh, and the demonization of wolves and say, hang on, there's, you know, we, they, they, they are part of the ecological 
uh, landscape. Um, the wolves, in particular, as a pursuit predator, play a big role in in predator prey relationships, particularly with deer. We have a big problem with deer. Maybe you know there could be a part of the solution based around the real reintroduction of wolves. So yes, that's that's clear. But I don't think I think culturally we still have a long way to go to uh, to get to that point. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, maybe it wasn't the main intention of the project, as Doug says, but I think that's half the battle, really, is starting that discussion. And I think there's no better time to start that discussion than now. Um, And it's a good way to do it by focusing on one aspect of potential reintroductions of large predators is that pursuit um, predator effect of creating a landscape of disturbance. I think that is looking at one factor of them, but then you realize there's a lot more benefits. Yes, there are difficulties, but there are a lot more benefits to be had from reintroducing large predators or other animals that are not large predators, but still keystone species. So I think it's a good way to get people to start thinking about that bit by bit and start discussing it. And yes, the wolf is a bit of a provoking sort of animal it does have a bit of a bad rep but it also gets people talking about both ends of that extreme spectrum when it comes to reintroductions so i think that's really good that trees for life are maybe inadvertently starting that discussion a bit more wildly uh, wildly widely well Well said lisa yeah agree yeah it, it it definitely you know strikes me as just an interesting way to kind of get people mentally prepared for a wolf reintroduction down the road. Um, and, you know, I live here in, in Idaho, you could say, like relatively close to sort of the epicenter of the two major wolf reintroduction projects that were implemented here in the U.S. in the 90s. And that is still, an, you know, despite the fact that wolves have now been on the landscape for two decades, more than two decades, it is still an extraordinarily controversial issue uh, with you know wolves being pulled on pulled off and then back on off and on of mm-hmm. the endangered species list here in the u.s um mm-hmm. and you know state politics versus federal um and you know states fighting against the federal government versus you know to, to like determine what the appropriate number of wolves should be um and then you know wolves doing what wolves do and spreading to other areas right and even though we even though wolves were only reintroduced in two states now they're in quite a quite a number of states here in the uh in the western u.s so i i I mean i guess i just wonder like what sense you guys have of like the level of controversy you know surround like that 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 might someday surround like a a a real world wolf introduction in scotland um i mean is this is this going to be a a really big battle it depends how it plays out i would hope i mean I i think if it turns into a battle then we've kind of lost and, you know, we'll, we'll always be, uh, our energy will always be sucked up in this sort of uh, argument uh, with red-faced farmers and, and uh, landowners who are going to be shaking their fist at us, you know, without, you know, any chance of changing their mind over everything. So I think if we get to that stage of, you know, uh, of being in a battle, that, that's not, not what I would say would be the, the, the best course. And it's really more about a long period, and I'm talking, you know, decades of of um, uh, educational drip, uh, uh, and not 
disguising the issues and the impacts that you know, we we, uh, we might not want, like them killing horses or you know uh, having impacts on um, on livestock. And and to to my view, it it really depends on how this the the, the upland landscape of Scotland, the rural upland landscape of Scotland, is is changing quite rapidly now because of changes in subsidy regimes around sheep. Uh, there are far fewer sheep than there used to be now, uh, far less livestock altogether, far fewer cattle. And then if this if the the political situation around deer continues to evolve the way that it does. Then you know wolves actually may not be much uh, of a of a of a problematic animal in the future, and the 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 positive aspects of having wolves around, uh, you know the the ecotourism things. Even I hesitate to add the sort of opportunities for uh, hunting, uh, if we get to that stage, uh, would will outweigh the uh, the negatives. There'll always be people who just absolutely, you know, will not countenance the idea and they think it's a backward and retrograde step. Uh, but there'll be many more voices who'll say uh, it's positive and forward. Lisa. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I think uh, Doug made some good points there, and I think that's one of the reasons that I was, you know, really drawn to doing this with Trees for Life or collaborating with them is because one of the main issues we have with conservation topics in Scotland is there. And, and around the world, I think it's safe to say is you so easily get into a debate and an argument about us and them, um, us and them being maybe in Scotland uh, conservation interests and then landowners or shooting sport estates and things like this. It gets too quickly into that and it escalates very, very quickly from that point on. I know that from some of my work on sort of bird of, uh, bird of prey persecution here. Um, but that's one of the things that Trees for Life, I think, is, is has started doing you know, from the from the start of what everything that they've done, uh, just on the level of trees, not even to do with re, you know the rewilding of other animals. Um, they've worked with local and landowners. They've listened to them. They've worked lo- with local communities and taken those perspectives into account. They're not trying to make that into this is our interests and we're going to do this. They are realizing that there are going to be limitations on that, and the only way to really be successful is to um, work in cooperation with other interests that are not going, yes, I think cultures are changing and very quickly and they might continue to change because of other political factors in recent years, a bit more, uh, and in years to come a bit more quickly. Um, but they really, they're not going to go away overnight and you need to work with, with local people and other interests to make these things happen and not make it into a discussion instead of a debate. Um, for me, it was really interesting when I was doing research, talking to people in different parts of Europe about how the wolf is perceived. And, and it is kind of a shame that it, you know, as you say, in the States and in mainland Europe, the wolf can return of its own accord. So yes, it's being reintroduced to some places, but it can also wander into other places. So like for, in Denmark, it's um, they've reappeared recently. They've wandered into Denmark and that's been handled really, really quickly and they've had to come up with solutions for things like um farm farmers and agriculture and problems that may arise from them returning but they have done that um so we we don't have that situation in the uk we need to actively reintroduce them at some point if that is ever going to happen um so there is a lot more sort of hoops you need to jump through and politics you need to address and social issues that arise from that so yeah it's a complicated one but i think doug's quite right in saying that you know, you have to reach that point naturally and organically rather than 
just let it get into uh, inflamed argument. One one of the things you've reminded me, Lisa, talking to you of Denmark, uh, the European Union uh, and the the directives uh, that come out of that, which are transposed into UK law, uh, make it an obligation on member states to consider reintroducing animals that were formerly, you know, a, a part of a member state's uh, native flora and fauna. Uh, so, as part of the European Union, we have this kind of obligation, and Britain has been particularly poor at, uh, at living up to that. But we've we've finally bitten a bullet with uh, in terms of beaver, uh, and people, as I say, are now talking about lynx, but. Once we leave the European Union, which it appears that we're about to do, although it's still not, uh, still not a done deal, uh, then that removes that uh, at least legal obligation. So there may be some shift in uh, politics and uh, political uh, and, and sort of, you know, rewilding power uh, in relation to, particularly in relation to reintroductions, which will unlikely to be positive from, from our aspect. So, you know, all these things can, can change uh, the way that you have to react to the to the situation one of the things that that both of you guys mentioned um that i think is important and relevant to to discuss is um the fact that you are involved already in uh reintroducing beavers and uh, i mean that that seems like a logical sort of first step is you know to to um, do reintroductions for some animals like the beaver, which is absolutely a keystone species, critical to every ecosystem that it, it inhabits, um, but certainly not nearly as controversial uh, of a reintroduction as, as something like the wolf. So I'm curious just to hear about like how those reintroductions are going, what stage you're at. Well, particularly with beaver. Well, so there's, um, at least I'll be able to talk about the red kite uh, reintroduction, but there's been two or three uh, very successful bird reintroductions, predatory bird reintroductions, which are as close as we've got to introducing, you know, an apex predator, the white-tailed eagle, sea eagle in Scotland. And that's been very successful and it's been rolled out in several different areas. So we've now got a fantastic uh, breeding population of white-tailed eagles and uh, red kites across parts of the UK. The beaver has been a little bit dodgy <laughs> uh, in that the uh, the whole thing started off as uh, um, an illegal escaping uh, of beavers that nobody knew what the provenance of them was, whether they carry were carrying a particular disease or a particular parasite called the echinococcus. Uh, so there was a lot of angst around all of that, but uh, a call for a cull from the Scottish government was met with outrage, you know, a popular uprising. <laughs> you know, you can't just do that. So basically, uh, there's been a population of beavers arrived in Scotland that have uh, that have arrived there in, you know, uh, uh, what should we say, uh, not quite an illegal way, but uh, an irregular way which didn't, didn't comply with uh, the IUCN uh, protocols or anything like that. So that's been a bit of an issue. Um, and we've, But I think everybody engaged with that now realises that those beavers are here to stay. They're now a population of several hundred. And uh, even if you wanted to eradicate them, you'd, you probably wouldn't be able to. So they're here to stay. So we've been forced into that kind of um, situation. And it's only... And it's taken the Scottish government effectively 15 years to recognise the beaver now as something which requires protection as a, as a native animal. So it will soon have the status of a native 
wild animal in Scotland, which is great. Um, but there's still a lot of angst uh, from landowners, uh, farmers in riparian areas who say that beavers cause flooding, that they um, they gnaw through uh, trees, uh, that they create dams which are problematic for for fisheries. All those things are still, you know, in the background and and quite quite vociferous, really. Um, we had uh, was talking to one. Uh, uh, advocate of uh, rewilding who was saying who lives in the area where the beavers have, have uh, re-established and he was saying that his neighbours are virtually apoplectic they just can't you know they, they hate beavers and they want to get rid of them uh, I, I think that's you know that's a rather jaundiced view of it I think there are people out there who uh, accept beavers in Scotland just now but it's certainly not uh, an easy ride so lynx or wolf is going to be you know 10 times uh, the effort but i think the way that it happens if it happens kind of by the book so that everybody feels like there's still a level of control that they can uh they can either step out or stop uh, or, or you know have a discussion at any point uh, is the key to it but on the other hand if it takes too long then you know somebody is going to say you know i've had enough of this and uh, chuck a couple of lynxes out the back of a van. <laughs> now we'll have them. I don't think you're exaggerating either. I think that's literally what will happen. But yeah, I definitely had the same experience when I was doing my research where I did come across people who were very against beaver reintroduction, but couldn't really give me a substantial reason as to why. And I think it has a lot to do with how they're um, introduced. And in this case, a lot of the language they were using about certain animals was kind of overlapping with talking about invasive species. And if you reintroduce an animal in the wrong way, it is kind of seen in the same light. It's seen as a problematic animal rather than a native one that's already got sort of a role in the ecosystem that exists here. Um, and I think it's very, very crucial not to get these species seen as invasive species, which everybody knows, even if not from examples in the UK, from examples from elsewhere, um, you know, they are a problem and then you will get people wanting them removed. Um, so, yeah, I think definitely approaching attitudes very carefully is important with that one. There's so much controversy over reintroductions, wolf reintroductions here in the U.S., where here in Idaho, where I live, like wolves weren't extirpated from this landscape for that long. I mean, less than a century before they were reintroduced again. Um, but it just it seems like you know, the hurdle as far as the attitudes of people is maybe significantly higher in the UK just because wolves have been absent from that landscape for a lot longer. And so there's there, there really is, you know, very little sort of cultural memory of, of, of what it was like uh, uh, when there were wolves, when there were beavers, um, uh, lynx, you know, all these animals that, that, that are native. But I mean, if they haven't been there since the 1700s, it's, it's hard for people to sort of see and understand the potential benefit that those animals have on the ecosystem. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, I listened to your podcast with Kimberly Fanchier about wolves will eat your borderlines. And I think she could probably have a field day with Brexit and immigration and reintroductions in this country. That is definitely um, seems really interesting. Uh, but yeah, I think it is there is kind of this cultural attitude that we have kind of sanitized Britain almost because we have these wonderful cut off borders. 
um, from having animals that are any sort of threat to us. And we, we just can't seem to get our heads around that basically that we, um, wouldn't be, I want to use this really carefully. Actually, I need to phrase this really carefully is I feel like people feel really, really safe in the countryside. Like they know that they are essentially apex predator, I suppose. And they don't want anything threatening that sense of safety, which is quite a selfish view really when it comes down to it. But then I think things like the project wolf study where it's getting people outside in the night when you're most vulnerable really kind of changes attitudes very, very quickly. Um, I think more people really need to be connected with their environment to have that level of respect, to understand that it's not just about our convenience. It's not about um, whether we rather ridiculously worry about wolves when we're walking our dogs because we're not going to be in the same areas as these animals, more than likely the majority of us. Okay. Maybe estate owners and stuff like that, but you know, it's it really is about the social attitudes. Early on in this conversation, we spent a lot of time sort of talking about like what the experience was like of the human wolf pack and 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 you know how those the, the people who participated in that sort of felt, um, you know, spending um, all of this time out in these forested areas at night, um, and it just strikes me as like that would be a very different experience if if there were top predators on that landscape so a lot of them or a few of them come with uh, kind of a little bit of uh, um, trepidation around you know how they'll get on with being in a forest at night and their and their assumption is that it'll be a bit scary uh, when they actually do it uh, and get out there okay they're in groups of three but it's easy to get scared in a group of three uh, that passes within seconds and they realize that it's actually a really interesting place where you know different things happen. They're, they're like you know, possible to come across uh, badgers and bats. They can see uh, birds displaying in the sky at dusk and um, snipe calling and all that stuff comes to the and it's very very enjoyable and very safe and they soon love it. And so some people actually have a you know real turnaround in terms of their their attitude to nighttime in general but also um yeah their relationship with nature from my own experience right um you know i grew up uh in in the northeastern u.s in the boston area there are certainly no wolves there and you know i i grew up spending a lot of time in the outdoors but you know the time i spent in the outdoors was you know uh, time spent in areas where, where there are no um, large predators out there on, on the landscape. But then I moved here to Idaho, and um, when I go camping, like, it's it's normal to hear wolves howling at night. Um, and, I mean, it just, it adds an element to the experience. Um, and, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that, that, that I'm fearful uh, being out there uh, with wolves on the landscape, but it definitely adds a very different element to the experience. Yeah, yeah. I've been to um, Yukon and been in the presence of wolves, so and grizzly bears. So yeah, it, you get you get the idea very fast that you know there are things out there that could, if they so minded, um, chase you down and eat you. <laughs> um, and for me, that's you know it's very unlikely as long as you behave uh, properly. You just have to learn a little bit of um, you know uh, a tactic or two, uh, and but you're. It, 
your experience of nature is then immeasurably increased because you're camping in a place where you can hear wild wolves howling. What an amazing experience that would be in Scotland. But anyway, we're kind of straying. I should say that the most the most dangerous, apart from other human beings, the most dangerous thing that you can come across uh, in the forest at Dundragon, uh, uh, even if there were wolves and bears around, would be Ixodotes ticks. <laughs> because, oh, yeah, right, yeah. Lyme's disease, and you'll know about it. Ticks are, are not not fun. And yeah, I'd definitely be more worried about that and more worried about the weather. Um, and I, I mean, it's easy for us to say because we're all nature loves already. But, it, you know, it does kind of make going out and enjoying Scotland's wild places even kind of more exciting for more people, I think, because it does seem like a wild place where maybe they underestimate the potential of it right now, I think. So, yeah, there are some pros as well as those cons. Um, I think I'd, I'd love to experience that in my own company, but that's easy for me to uh, country. But I think that would, that's pretty easy for me to say, probably. I wonder if, you know, the ideas ever crossed your mind to use this same concept to replicate the behavior of other species that ha- have been extirpated from the Scottish landscape. You know, maybe you could have some uh, some human brown bears, you know, sort of roaming through the forest or, uh, you know, I mean, I guess beavers are already introduced. Right. But I mean, you could have human beavers, you know, like building some small dams along forest streams. You know, I mean, have you guys been thinking about like ways to sort of uh, expand this this concept of the human wolf pack? What an interesting idea, Matthew. Human beavers. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Um, to be honest, no. The only thought that's passed my mind is what, how different would it have been as Project Lynx if we're saying that, you know, Lynx is a bit closer to realisation than, than wolves in real life, then, you know, could you call it Project Lynx? But Lynx hunt in a very different way. They're ambush predators. So what we'd have would be um, basically, you know, humans sitting quietly in bushes for nine hours and then jumping out uh, or or leaving carcasses around. I'm not sure what it would be anyway. It's whether by design or uh, just fate, the the wolf tends to, because it's a pursuit predator and we kind of have long legs and we can walk about, um, the wolf lends itself to um, imitation more readily than the other things that you've mentioned, particularly in the context of what it's there to achieve, which is, uh, you know, forest regeneration and uh, movement of deer around. I'm not sure brown bears would have similar impact, but I don't know. The last question I have for you guys, which is another sort of big picture conceptual thing to think about, um, and this is, you know, maybe directed more towards you, Lisa, is that, you know, I I really feel like this concept of uh, the human wolf pack could absolutely spread to other parts of the world. Um, I mean, especially here in the U.S. where wolf reintroductions are are already happening, um, but are still extraordinarily controversial. um, And we have, you know, and and, and these wolf populations are continuing to expand their range every year and, and, you know, um, move into new areas where, you know, the controversy sort of erupts anew every time that happens. Um, You know, it, it, it just strikes me as like, a really interesting concept and tool that could be used to raise awareness about the important role that wolves play on the, on, on the landscape. So, I mean, Lisa, I'm wondering if this is like something that, that you're thinking about. I mean, um, as you put your film together, the, the potential for this concept to spread. Yeah, I would definitely love to see that happen. And I think one of the main benefits of that, as you say, yes, it's appealing to people because it is, 
you know, walking in the footsteps of wolves and getting into that mindset and getting your head around that concept. But it's also opening up people to being educated about the uh, the actual impact of why people want to reintroduce wolves is not just for having the wolves here, all as wonderful as that would be for many people. It is the actual natural processes that they introduce along with them. Um, it is making sure that the, the deer are moved on and they're not overgrazing forest areas and that can expand. It is also um, about getting people outdoors and actually getting them more connected with their environment and feeling more responsible for it and feeling less afraid of it in this particular instance with Project Wolf. Um, not many of us would think about going for a walk in the woods at night. That's just not something you do, especially because many of us are brought up in cities and that's particularly something not that you don't do. Um, so it's got all of these elements together that I think there's a lot more you can learn just about every sort of aspect and definition of rewilding um, and also getting, I think, especially for my sort of generation is making sure that people keep that connection and responsibility because we're going to, you know, really pass that on. So we need to start these discussions now and really get people motivated to learn about these things. And living is the best way to do that. So I think none of the people that have gone through Project Wolf, myself included, are ever going to quite have the same attitudes again and the same feeling in the woods. So I think that's fantastic. I'd love to see it rolled out around Scotland and in other places in the world, yeah. Engagement of uh, people in something which is not just going for a walk for a, for a leisure pursuit purposes, actually engaging them in land management in a way that they can, you know, they can, it's very easy for them to become engaged in. It's just, a, it, it's, you know, it, there's no equipment involved other than, uh, other than the usual walking gear. And it just gives people uh, an in to... Uh, an, an environment or local environment which uh, they wouldn't otherwise have uh, and it's very different from any kind of other way of of interacting uh, with uh, with the environment so yeah I'm sh I'm sure there are ways in which this can be sp this can be uh, spread out and we are in discussion with various other uh, folk around you know the potential for um, spreading it out a bit just not just at Dundragon yeah, definitely. It's getting people to realize they can actually, they are already part of natural processes, whether we realize it or not, whether we separate those things conceptually, um, we have an impact on the natural world. You're already part of that. Um, so it's getting people to realize that in a very, very literal way. I think that would be great. Absolutely. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, that's that's really what was so interesting to me about this project is is this uh, very sort of tangible way that it draws this connection between humans and uh, the ecosystems that we inhabit. So, yeah, thanks to both of you for, for joining me in this episode and for being so willing to talk about this really fascinating project and for all the work that you do. And Lisa, I'm super excited to see how your film turns out, and I'm really excited to see how this concept uh, uh, that, that's been developed uh, for Project Wolf, how it evolves over time. So thanks a lot to both of you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Matthew. All right, that was our conversation with Doug Gilbert from Trees of Life and Lisa Marley, an independent filmmaker. If you're interested in learning more about this fascinating and bizarre project that Doug and Lisa are involved with, you can check out the show notes page for this episode. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC129. 
That's W-I-L-D-L-E-N-S-I-N-C dot org slash E-O-C-129. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, you can subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or just about anywhere podcasts are found. If you want to help new people discover the show, you can leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or follow the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. <laughs>